Another edition of Healthy Matters underway, and we, uh, as usual, and uh, always welcome your phone calls and text messages during the show. Same number applies for either your phone call or text, 651-989-9226. Say hello to uh, your host, Dr. David Hilden. Good morning. Good morning, Denny. 28 degrees. It's oh, it's beautiful. Balmy. I did get for a nice run around the lake Oh, yesterday. you did? Yeah, I ran around Lake Harriet, South Minneapolis, for those of you who Maybe aren't from here. I don't would know where imagine that is. you had a lot of people running with you. Yeah, that. it was me and half the city. I bet. And it was, but you know, running it on a February day when it's thirty-eight degrees or whatever it was, you need your uh, Wellingtons on, your your puddle boots. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, I'm running in sneakers, and you know, half the snow is melted, and so you're running basically through slush at some of the time. You know, and <laughs> so you tend to get a little cold feet. I got home with feet that were just it's as if I had dumped them in a bucket. I bet. But it was worth it. I didn't see you out there, Denny. No. No, I was, uh, I don't know what I was doing. You I wasn't shoveling. I was just watching it melt. I was <laughs> I was watching people like you run. Exactly, exactly. So it was a great day outside. Yeah, Welcome, everybody, to the show. Thank you for tuning in. It's, uh, uh, we're, we're ready to go, and we're going to hit the ground running on a topic we've not done before. No, I don't, I don't think. think we have. We're going to talk about ALS today. And if you don't know what ALS is, you might not be alone, but you maybe do know a little bit about it. Um, you maybe know it as Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, people of a, at least of a certain generation remember Lou Gehrig, the baseball player for whom it was eventually named um, because he was its most prominent person um, with it. But it stands for amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, which is not easy for anyone to say. But we're going to talk about that illness with a colleague of mine, Sam Miser. He is a doctor at um, Hennepin Healthcare with me, and he's a doctor of several things. First of all, welcome to the show, Sam. Thank you so much. Good to have you here. You're a doctor of several things, and I'm not kidding. So I'm reading, I'm reading your bio, and I knew, you know, in, in, you do a few things. You do palliative care, and you do neurology. You're board certified in both of those things. Is that correct? That's right. And then you do clinical neurophysiology and hospice care. Correct. All right. Tell me about the intersection of all that. How did you get into those uh, disciplines? That's a lot of things to be good at. Yeah, well, um, I think I got interested in all of those things mostly because of ALS, actually. Um, In my neurology training, I had to figure out how to take care of patients with ALS since it's such a serious disease. So that's sort of where the palliative care and and hospice aspect came in. Um, And the neuroclinical physiology is more about um, the electricity of the nervous system. And so to diagnose ALS, I had to learn a a test called EMG, which is to look at the nerves and muscles. And uh, so I put neurology with with the EMG training, with the palliative care training, with a long-term goal of being able to do ALS really well. Right. And still do a lot of other things that I enjoy, like general neurology and uh, palliative care. Where Where are you from? I'm from Waconia, Minnesota. You're born from and raised. Waconia. Born and raised. Oh, I don't know. Right, so kind of yeah. not too far here from the nope. from the center of town, but what thirty miles yeah. south southwest of of the Twin Cities. Yeah, it takes about forty five minutes to get there. Yeah. Where'd you do your schooling? So I went to undergraduate at Hamlin in mm-hmm. St. Paul, and then medical school at the University of Minnesota, and residency and fellowship at University of Minnesota, and I took one year and went to Milwaukee. Okay, so that, that was your, your one year, and we'll forgive you for that. <laughs> Thank you. For doing your one year in Wisconsin. <laughs> well, welcome to the show. I'm glad it's our first time having Dr. Miser on the show. Um, and we're going to talk, and I don't believe we've talked about ALS before. And so uh, can you start us off 
by helping us all understand just a little bit about what it is. Yeah, so so ALS, uh, we consider it a very serious disease. Um, it's classified as what we call a neurodegenerative disease, which simply means cells of the nervous system are sick and dying. And uh, similar to like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, but in but in ALS, the disease that are the the, the cells that are getting sick are are uh, cells that control movement. We call them motor neurons. So the disease is also known as motor neuron disease. Um, and the motor neurons control every muscle in the body, whether it's your the muscles of your speaking, your swallowing, your breathing, your arms, your legs. And in ALS, unfortunately, the, those cells just continually get sick and die. And patients uh, develop symptoms of weakness in their muscles, of their speaking and their swallowing and their arms and legs. Are these cells in your brain? They're in your central nervous they're, system, in your spine? They're in your, your, your brain and your spinal cord. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cells that start in your brain and the nerves that go all the way up to your muscles, that whole pathway is, is sick and, and in trouble in, this, in ALS. And you said they kind of continually do that. It sounds then like it's quite gradual. Yeah, it's gradual and it's progressive. Do we know what causes it? There are theories. We think there's probably multiple mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Um, we just can't put all the pieces of the puzzle together so, so it makes a coherent story. And so a lot of the, the theories of research and treatment are based on these individual theories, but we still haven't cracked the code and found the, the answer. So, so are, we, are we able to tell people um, anything that like some risk factor they had or, is, you know, or it was this exposure or anything? It's hereditary or do we, is it pretty much just sneaks up on us for when, when you see patients? So what do you tell them if they say, yeah. how did I get this? Yeah. Most of the time, it's, it is random. There is g- genetic forms of it. About 10% is in the family, and a lot of people will get it in the family. But most is, is seemingly random. And th- so there is very little we know about the risk factors. We know that it tends to be in, in the physically inclined people, like Lou Gehrig, so people who have been pretty f- physically fit and, and active throughout most of their life. Uh, there's a higher risk in military veterans. We're not sure why. Um, we see a lot of sports players who get it. Uh, one risk factor that pops out is a history of smoking. Again, why? We're not quite sure. You uh, tack that onto the list of about 60 things of everything that else. tell people that smoking is not good for. That's right. Yeah. And so, but that's not causative. Yeah, no. And so, so the best we can say is we, we really don't know. Um, we know this is what we know, but we have a lot to do to figure out why. And mm-hmm. that's why there's still a lot of research going into it. So many people remember it as just that, Lou, or know it of uh, as just that Lou Gehrig's disease, but uh, know little, or perhaps know somebody with it, but maybe not. How common is it? We consider it rare, um, but I, when you say that to a family affected by it, they say it's not rare because suddenly they know everyone who has ALS. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. We always say in about Minnesota, there's probably about 500 patients at, at any given time. Mm-hmm. And so in a population of 100,000, maybe two to five people per that 100,000. And so it's classified as, as being rare. Uh, but because it's, it affects everyone around you, not just the person with the disease, but the whole family, uh, you tend to see more and more of it when you're 
personally affected. And, right. and it suddenly doesn't seem rare anymore to those people. Yeah. It doesn't seem so rare to me. and pro- I know it doesn't to you. It probably is a little bit your availability of people that you, that you know. You do it as a practice. Right. I see it as a, only peripherally as an internal medicine practice. And we're going to talk more about this, but I see it because of people getting feeding tubes and the like. Um, and then, um, and then I have a personal family member, my cousin, Steve, who lives in Illinois. He has had it for a number of years and, and is living with ALS for many years, which is a little uncommon, I think as well. So for me, it's a something, um, uh, that, that I'm, I think that's a really interesting point. It's not rare to those of you who are affected by it, right? But unfortunately it doesn't get then probably the huge dollars for research and the huge, uh, um, emphasis that we might hear for other, other diseases. I think the uh, the ice bucket challenge, if you remember, yes. several years ago, did help with a lot of research dollars. Um, a lot of people remember the ice bucket challenge, but maybe not remember why they did it, which is which is sort of a so you're a, dumping ice water <laughs> on your head. You knew it was for a good cause. You're not exactly sure, right? Um, and then there are a lot of like patient driven advocacy groups out there that are trying to make an increase awareness of the disease. Um, and so there is a fair amount of research, but because it's not as common as Alzheimer's, dementia, and Parkinson's, there probably isn't as much, uh, you know, overall funding for it. Let's talk a little bit about the basics of it. How yeah. um, it, it's gradual, it's progressive. It means it comes, it it progresses and worsens slowly over time. Um, although slowly is a relative term, I think, um, uh, given the life, the general life expectancy. And the symptoms are gradual. Could you tell us what are some of the earliest symptoms? So the earliest symptoms are usually weakness in some region of the body. So it could be in the foot or the hand or maybe subtle changes in the speaking and swallowing. Um, So it usually starts in one area of the body like that. And what the person would notice is that over over time, like weeks or months, that weakness just gets worse in that area. So, for example, the right hand is weak, they're more clumsy, and over time it gets weaker. And as time goes on, it starts to spread to other regions of the body, so maybe the left hand gets weak, and then the legs. Is it a subtle weakness, or you suddenly can't use your hand? It, whatever, or whatever body part. Yeah, it's usually more, more subtle, like, you know, someone who's a runner, and suddenly I just can't run as fast, or mm-hmm. I'm a little bit more clumsy when I'm running. Um, but people have described more sudden changes. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. So it starts out with some weakness, and and can is this a younger person's thing? Or is I I know um with with my cousin. Sorry, Steve, if you happen to be listening, I mention <laughs> you every now and then. Um, he was he was a young man. Is that common? It's not. It's actually most common around fifty five to seventy years uh, of age, uh, but it can affect. People in their 20s and 30s, I've had patients in their 20s and 30s, and it can affect people older, but it's generally most common in their 55 to 70 range. All right, Denny? Yes, we'll need to take a quick break, but again, let's invite our listeners to join in on the conversation. 651-989-9226, that's for both the phone call and the text messages, if that's easier for you. 651-989-9226. In the Twin City skies are fair, currently 28 degrees, heading for 42 Here again is our number for the phone call or text messages, 651-989-9226. And here again is Dr. Hilden. 
Thank you, Denny. We're talking with Sam Miser, a neurologist and, and a specialist in the treatment of chronic conditions in palliative care. And specifically, he's got an interest in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or Lou Gehrig's disease. And that's what we're talking about um, today. So, um, Sam, we were talking about some of the early symptoms being weakness. Could you sort of, um, if you would, describe what a what a maybe, I don't know if there's such a thing as typical, but a typical course then for someone who is diagnosed. First of all, how are, how are you diagnosed? And then what kind of clinical course might one expect? Yeah, so diagnosis is usually done by a neurologist. So, hope, so hopefully your primary care doctor or someone will get you to a neurologist. And uh, there's no like blood test to say you have it or you don't, really. It's really a clinical diagnosis, meaning... Uh, does your history and your physical exam fit with the disease and have other conditions been ruled out through blood work and maybe MRIs and other tests? And once the neurologist says, yeah, I think this is ALS, unfortunately, uh, then then there is a big discussion about you know what to expect. And uh, what a typical course is, is usually measured in, in uh, unfortunately, short years. Uh, most patients will die within three years. Uh, with an average expectancy of about two to five years with some outliers. Do you tell people that right up front? Uh, not necessarily. Some will ask. I may gauge, like, mm-hmm. what do you want to know? How much do you want to know about what to expect for the future? And everyone has their own preferences. Some will say, lay it on me. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't hide anything. And some will say, just give me what I need to know now. And so it kind of depends. But over time, of course, uh, the information does come out or has to come out so that we can make big decisions down the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what will ultimately happen, or what has to happen for it to be ALS, is that the weakness, wherever it started, has to get worse, and it has to spread. And so uh, once the legs are involved, people will need help with walking. They may need walkers or wheelchairs or power wheelchairs. Or if their hands get weak, they may need help getting dressed and bathed and just daily living. Um, and then, of course, when the really serious muscles get affected, like of speaking and swallowing and breathing, uh, we have to have pretty serious conversations and make some decisions about how to best take care of someone. Uh, communication is so important as, as being a human, so we work very hard to help with communication. So if talking is difficult, they may use uh, technology like iPads or they can communicate with computers using their eyes, just their eye movements, uh, swallowing um, if they can't maintain their weight, because weight is so important in ALS, patients may need to decide whether or not they'd be okay getting a feeding tube sort of implanted into their stomach um, or help with breathing. And so a lot of people know obstructive sleep apnea or wear this mask called CPAP, which is a, you know, this mask you wear at night to help you breathe. A lot of ALS patients may need that support at some point too to help with their, their, their weakness in their breathing muscles. And so Depending on where the ALS starts and how fast it's changing, those decisions and those conversations come up at some point. Are there treatments? Those are supportive things, and I um, those three things seem most critical, communication, swallowing, eating, and breathing. So there are supportive cares that you've mentioned for those things. Are there treatments that reverse anything? Are there drugs? Are there other things that can slow the progression There's nothing yet to reverse it. We don't have a cure. That's what we're all looking for. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are currently two FDA-approved medicines that have shown uh, that it can slightly slow down the progression of ALS, and they're not enough. They they just are not enough, whereas some patients decide not to take them. 
And what I mean by not enough is if someone's expected to live maybe three years or so, one of the medications may give you an extra two to three months. Mm. And so some people will say, I, that's, that's not worth it to me. And then I have some patients say, I want everything possible to help me live longer. But unfortunately, nothing will stabilize it, nothing will reverse it, and nothing will cure it at this point. We're going to talk a little later in the show, listeners, about what current research might be going on. or, or And also we're going to um, talk about what resources you, loved ones, family members can access about ALS. So you're going to want to stay tuned to hear that. I want to talk a little bit about diagnosis. I want to talk a little bit about nerve tests. But in order to do that, I think we should go to the phone lines because I believe there's a call that is about a nerve test. All right. Let's uh, go to the uh, uh, Kathy in Minneapolis is on the line. Thanks, Kathy. What can we do for you? Yes. Hi. I am going to have an EMG in about a week um, for uh, severe neuropathy from chemotherapy. Uh, it, it goes from my feet all the way up to my hip, and I frequently fall. I have to be in a wheelchair now. I've never had an EMG, and I'm just kind of wondering what it entails and if it's painful. And third, do you get the results right away? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. So everyone will tolerate an EMG a little differently. Um, so there are we, we talk about two parts of the EMG. There's a part where the the provider will um, give you a little electrical shocks to measure how healthy the nerves are, and they'll do do that multiple times on probably both of your legs. And then the second part is the, the, the doctor will use a very thin needle and put it into your muscles. And um, everyone tolerates those parts of the tests a little differently. Some can't tolerate it, and some are just fine. And depending on the provider, they some will give you the results right then and there, and some don't. So it really will be provider dependent. What are you looking for in an EMG? What does it stand for? And so what are you looking for? So it stands for electromyography, and what we're looking for um, is how healthy the nerves are. Are they communicating fast enough? Are they are the nerves big enough? Is there any damage to the nerves? And then we're also looking to see if the muscles are being damaged. So are the muscles being damaged because they have a muscle disease? Or are the muscles being damaged because when a nerve is no longer connected to that muscle, the, the muscle starts to, starts to die? And so we're looking for the health of the muscles and nerves and then how severe is the damage. In ALS specifically, do you use EMGs as part of your diagnosis? Yes, yes, and and many times it's a much more um, extensive exam where we'll do the EMG on their their leg and their arm, uh, muscles of their back, and then sometimes even muscles of their face, such as their tongue. So it's a very elaborate test, and, and you'll if you talk to an ALS patient, many of them have gone through two, three, four, sometimes even five EMGs before the diagnosis is f- fully confirmed. Is that because the first ones um, missed it or it was in an unaffected part of the body? Because when you do an EMG, you're looking at one part of the body with each test, right? Yeah. So you would hope to test the part of the body that's affected, mm-hmm. but uh, and maybe all you see is changes in the leg. So if you have leg weakness and if you don't see changes anywhere else, you may not be confident that's the right diagnosis. And as I was saying earlier, that if, if it's truly ALS, it will progress and eventually involve all the parts of the body. So if you repeat the EMG, then maybe you'll see changes now in the leg and the arm, and you can be more confident with the diagnosis. And so the EMG should also worsen with time, just like the disease. I'm going to talk a little bit still on diagnosis, and I'm going to use a text message here to kind of pick your brain about 
what else could it be when people have you know weakness or whatever? This text message says, "What's the difference between ALS and multiple sclerosis?" That's for instance. Yeah. So uh, multiple sclerosis would be on the, the possible um, list of other diseases. So uh, many times it is uh, something that's affecting the brain and spinal cord. So multiple sclerosis. Do they have a, a brain tumor, a stroke? Or uh, very commonly, we get arthritis in our neck. So is there bone and disc pushing on the spinal cord? That can cause weakness in the arms and legs. Um, And then there are some other nerve diseases that can also um, look like ALS. And those will be all sorted out through testing, such as the EMG and perhaps MRI testing. More to come after the break. Very good. Here's our phone number, 651-989-9226. That also is the same number for your text questions, 651-989-9226. Nine two two six In the Twin Cities, 28 degrees. We'll have a look at that forecast coming up. Good morning. Welcome back to Healthy Matters. We're talking about ALS, welcoming your questions by phone and text. Same number, 651-989-9226. And here again is Dr. Hilden. Thanks so much, Danny. We're talking with Sam Miser. He is a physician at Hennepin Healthcare in our departments, plural, of neurology and palliative care. He is a specialist in um, neurology with a a particular interest in ALS, which is our topic for today. He does clinical neurophysiology, the electricity of your nerves, that is. He does hospice care, palliative medicine, and he is joining us this morning to talk about Lou Gehrig's disease or ALS. Thanks for being here. Just a little re-welcome, Sam. Thank you so much. Good to have you on the show. We've been talking a little bit about um, what might cause ALS. Apparently, we don't really know so much but um, about that. I don't mean the two of us. I mean science in general doesn't. We talked a little bit about the signs and symptoms of it. And I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about... Uh, where things are going, if you will, is research being done on ALS? Yeah, you bet. Um, so there's a lot of uh, basic science research looking at, you know, what is the cause? What are the mechanisms at the cellular level or the DNA level? Um, and then there are treatments that we're putting into humans to see if it has an effect. And then everything in between, like animals and other things. And uh, there are uh clinical trials that give someone a medicine to see if it's better than a placebo. There are treatments that have to do with stem cells, if that's better than not. Is that um, promising? I, I hope so. There's a really famous trial that everyone in the ALS community knows about that um, is fully enrolled and, and, and ongoing, and we hope to learn more later this year or the next year to see if it's beneficial because um, it's, a, it's a, an advanced study. It's in a, a later phase, so it's very close that if it shows benefit, would be potentially available to many people quickly. Um, and then there's a lot of focus on if you, have the, the, if you have it in the family, if you have a known DNA problem, if we give you a, a treatment to kind of fix that DNA problem, will it stop or prevent ALS? And so that's also very exciting because we're doing it now in, in humans who have the disease. Are, are most of the trials done at um, major universities in a few places? Or, like, what if you're listening to this and, you know, and, you, and you've got a loved one and your local neurologist is you know, maybe not located at a major academic center? Are there ways for people to learn about what's going on or to get involved in some trials? Yeah, it, the, the trials kind of depends on how, you know, is it an early study where it's just looking at safety or is it a later study looking at how helpful is it? And so uh, there are some trials that are throughout the nation that are probably located at 
big uh, institutions like Hennepin Healthcare, the University of Minnesota, or Mayo Clinic. Um, and then there are some that are just going to be in like one hospital like Harvard or, you know, some of the big, big names. Um, and there are ways to learn about it. So a lot of clinics are associated with the ALS Association. So they have links on their website. Uh, there is a government website, clinicaltrials.gov, where people could look into it. Um, and then it doesn't hurt to ask your, your doctors, your neurologists, like, is, are you seeing a neurologist in an ALS clinic? Do they do research like we do at Hennepin? Or could they refer you to a center that doesn't take you too long to get to where you could potentially be involved in research? So there are a lot of online resources to learn about research. Are you enrolling patients at Hennepin? We do research. Right now we're not actively enrolling in a study because uh, we're in between one that is finishing and, and hopefully starting some new ones. Um, but we almost always have some sort of research going on. And we do work closely with our with our uh, collaborators in the Twin Cities, so people at the University of Minnesota and health partners and VA. We try to uh, collaborate just because it is a rare disease. We want to make sure that every Minnesotan or people close to Minnesota have access to high-quality research. Could you comment on this? Um, I have heard from from those with ALS that given the, the let's be honest, the not long life expectancy, at least on average, they can't wait. And so I've heard, you know, I, I've heard people say, I really hope that there will be some um, developments and some treatments that are effective, but I don't have 10 to 15 to 20 years to wait for those. I wish I could get involved or we could speak speed up the process? Or couldn't I get involved in something that isn't quite so advanced yet? And in other words, the early research that's in the safety trials, mm-hmm. you know, they, I've heard people say, I'm willing to give it a whirl even earlier, even if we don't know if it works, even if we don't know how safe it is, sort of on the what have I got to lose um, attitude. Could you comment on that? Yeah, that is something I talk about with patients almost on a weekly basis, especially patients who've had the disease too long, right? Like they've had it now for a couple of years and aren't, they don't qualify for a lot of research studies. And so either they, they can still do research that has more to do with disease understanding where they can give blood samples and we can try to f- learn more about what's causing ALS. Um, the other thing that common comes up, commonly comes up is this idea of you know, expanded access or right to try, which just really hasn't worked as well as I think we all hoped, where patients say exactly what you're saying, Dr. Hilden, which is, I don't have time. Why can't I have access now to those treatments? And when we pursue those, it's often a dead end where we, just, we can't get those treatments. Or patients will ask for things off-label, like, why can't you just prescribe this even if it's not part of a clinical trial? And so it's an ongoing thing where the community as a whole is trying to say, let's speed up the process of clinical trials so that it doesn't take years to study one, um, one drug. Let's try to figure out how to get it faster through, this, through research so it can get faster to the FDA. 651-989-9226. Let's go to the phones. Dorothy is calling from Piers, Minnesota with a question. Go ahead, Dorothy. It's Darcy. Okay, Darcy. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, my question kind of got answered while I was on hold, but um, my dad just passed away less than 30 days ago from ALS, um, and he was a patient of Dr. Miser. So, Dr. Miser, I want to thank you for all the care that you gave him. Um, but on that stem cell, and I know I've asked you before, how far away are we from, from getting some results and actually using it? I know the research is there, but... How, how far out are we yet? Uh, well, thanks for calling, Darcy. And again, I'm so sorry uh, about what, what's happened. Um, thank you for your question. I, that is such a, an important question. 
what, it, what my understanding is, is about the stem cells is that all of the sites in the nation that are doing that study are completely enrolled, meaning they have all the patients that they need uh, to, to answer whether it's an effective treatment or not. Um, and so what needs to happen is all those patients in the study need to complete the study and so they can analyze it. And so I think the honest answer is I, I, I imagine we wouldn't know the results until later 2020, and the treatment wouldn't likely be available until 2021 if it shows to be effective. But my timeline could be off uh, a little bit, but that's sort of what my gut tells me. Kind of a, a follow-up from, from me. Thank you, Darcy, for, your, for yours. And, and uh, I'm sorry about your father as well. Thank you for your call. What about what, how, what is the theory on why stem cells might work? We hear about stem cells for everything, from arthritis to, to, to transplants to now ALS. Why might it work? Is there a, is there a hy- hypothesis? Yeah, so since the, the cells that are dying are in the brain and spinal cord, uh, how it works for ALS, at least the study that I'm talking about, is they take uh, the, sort of the stem cell treatment and they inject it into your spinal fluid. Sort of, I don't know if you're familiar with a spinal tap where you take out the fluid. This is actually putting the fluid in into the spinal fluid so that the stem cells could uh, be in physical contact with the spinal cord and brain to try to either preserve what motor neurons are still there or perhaps uh, you know, save or, or replace the motor neurons that have died. Um, and so that's, that's what it's getting at, is trying to replace or save or protect the motor neurons that are at risk for, for getting sick and dying. Thank you for your call. I, I'm, we're going to take a break in a few minutes, and then I'm going to hit the text line because there's a load of texts, and we're going to and let listeners take it from there. I want to just talk about a few famous people with it. Somebody has texted and says Bob Allison for the Minnesota Twins. Do you remember um, Bob Allison? He had it. Other famous people have had it. Lou Gehrig was one. Stephen Hawking had it. Did he not? That's what that's what we're told. I mean, he had a very is slow. That, is that a thing? I, yeah, it so is. He lived to be quite old. Yeah, I, th- I mean, I think, uh, you know, I've, I've never examined him, so I'm not, I can't be confident. But, uh, you know, we do have very, there are very rare slow progressors where they may have it for decades. Um, but there are other, uh, you know, famous sports players. So another really famous one that does a lot of advocacy for ALS is Steve Gleason. Mm. His, he is a New Orleans Saints player for, for the NFL, and he does a lot. He helps provide a lot of communication devices for patients so they can communicate with their eyes and, and other things. And so, uh, yeah, and it's, you know, the, the ice bucket challenge guy was a football player, and there's famous soccer players throughout the world that get it. So it's oftentimes a lot of famous people who are in the sports world who get I, ALS. It's interesting about that sports connection, and you had mentioned that earlier. In the show. My cousin Steve and um, was a French horn player, a gifted musician, and he was having trouble playing the valves on his French horn you know, with his fingers. And so he even moved to a valveless French horn for a while. He's a remarkable, remarkable human being. He's brilliantly smart. I am related to some smart people, um, <laughs> and Steve might be way at the top of that list. He's brilliantly smart and the most kind, um, insightful person. He even wrote a book. Um, if you want a book about a man living with ALS, a little self-promotion, or not self-promotion, my cousin Steve, his last name is Hieronymus, H-E-R-O-N-E-M-U-S. And he wrote a book called Shells. You can get it on Amazon if you want to hear a book written by a man living with ALS. He is one that has progressed more slowly. He's had it about 15 years, I think. That would be not 
not common. We're going to get to the text and the phone lines after the break. Very good. 651-989-9226 is the phone number. Also the text number, 651-989-9226. Fair skies, currently 28 degrees in the Twin Cities. High today, near 42. Hey, good morning. Welcome back to Healthy Matters. We're talking about ALS this morning, uh, welcoming your phone calls and text messages. And we have both, as you can see, Dr. Hilden. Let's uh, let's go to Jane, who's calling in from uh, Plymouth, I believe, this morning. Jane, we're all listening. Uh, yes, good morning. My husband died of ALS at age 56, and he had slipped on the ice and fallen and um, hit his head. And it was shortly after that that the symptoms started started, and I wondered if that had anything to do with what may have caused the ALS. That, that is uh, something I hear kind of commonly, that something happened, like a, a fall and they hit their head, or they had some sort of surgery on their back, or they went through a surgery, and then after that, they started to develop the signs and symptoms of ALS. And so I think that goes to um, that there was probably something happening in the body that puts them at risk for ALS. And that final injury or surgery just tips the scale enough where suddenly now their body develops ALS. And so whether it was the only thing contributing or was it sort of the last thing that was needed to start it is very possible the other thing we sometimes think about is, you know, did they need the surgery or did they fall because there were already subtle signs of the ALS? We never know what starts and what's the consequence, but it's common to hear that there was something that started um, the, the ALS progression. Jane, thank you for your call, and I'm sorry to hear about your husband, but thank you for your call. Let's go to Jim, who's calling from North Branch, then we'll grab some text messages. Jim, what is your question? Hello, Jim. Yeah, I had a question about, I have a son that's 53 years old, and he's been getting twitching in his legs below his knees. The muscles or the nerves, whichever it is, just do little twitches. You can see them all the time. And also, he seems to be losing the the meat on the bottom of his feet. You know, his feet, he feels like he's walking on skin and bone if he's barefoot in the house. And he's been doctoring a few times for it, and they tell him that if it is ALS, they can't diagnose it yet because it isn't enough yet for them to diagnose. And secondly, that there's no cure for it anyway. So they wait and see if he's got it or not. Is it twitching like that below the knees and Great. losing the skin on the bottom of your feet? Is that a, or the meat? Is that a sign of something? Or Great questions, Jim. These are great questions. Thank you. Thank you for calling. Yeah, Dr. Miser. Yeah, Jim. Uh, that, you know, that's certainly what concerned me as a neurologist, that twitching is a common sign of ALS, especially if it's associated with weakness or muscle loss. A lot of us will have twitching that's normal. Like I have twitching in my legs and that's completely normal. But if twitching is associated with muscle loss and weakness, definitely gets us worried. And I would you know, recommend that, uh, that he continues to work with his doctors, make sure he has a neurologist, because if it is ALS, even though he can't cure it, there's still a lot we can do in terms of supporting him throughout the, the course of his illness. That sounds a little, and uh, you said muscle loss. He's losing muscle of, on his feet even. That's muscle atrophy or could be. Yeah, certainly. And so I'd, I'd want to make sure it's not something else like a pinched nerve in the back or some other nerve disease. Uh, but that would, you know, that requires some uh, observation and testing like an EMG and, you know, anything else that he, he might need from his doctors. But uh, it's something that would, would worry me. 
Can we go to the text lines? We have a few minutes left. Let's do some lightning round on the text lines. This one says, I have pain in my lower back, thighs, and calves. A recent development is when I stand, my legs will start to spasm and shake uncontrollably. I also have a feeling of weakness in my legs. What could cause this? Should I consult a neurologist? Certainly would be reasonable if you thought you had weakness and stuff in your legs. It, it, it could be a problem in your back, a pinched nerve in your back, or some arthritis in your back. Um, and the best way to figure out what the cause is is to see a, a doctor like a neurologist to see if they can figure out where the problem is and what's causing it. As a primary care guy, I would say for sure. If you have weakness. Yeah, especially if you have weakness. If you have weakness in yeah. your legs, you should see a neurologist. Yeah. yeah. Here's another texter that says, um, my mom had multiple system atrophy and her cousin had ALS. Are there groups of neurologic diseases that are related to ALS? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, I, I believe so. There are overlap syndromes where someone will look like they have MSA um, and features of ALS or uh, Parkinson's disease and features of ALS. So they can even overlap in the same person. And so I do think that having those conditions in the family could be potential risk factors for other diseases. Here's another text. Just curious, is there any research regarding acupuncture to help ALS patients? I think that the acupuncture uh, research um, is, 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 I don't know it very well, to be honest. Uh, a lot of it has to do with, you know, symptoms and, and sort of quality of life measures. And so I'm not against acupuncture. I oftentimes recommend it for a lot of my patients. And I just haven't seen, and maybe that's just my own shortcoming, any evidence to say that acupuncture actually slows down the rate of progression of ALS. Okay, let's see if I'm going to paraphrase this one, but it says, um, my 81-year-old mother was doctoring with specialists before a wonderful doctor did an EMG test, and and the diagnosis was ALS, but unfortunately she died two weeks after the test. Why? I was, uh, why did why would you wait so long to get an EMG test? Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That that um, it, it probably has to do with the you know the, maybe the doctors the, that she was seeing. Uh, didn't have ALS in their mind. Maybe they're thinking of other conditions. And if you don't think about ALS or don't know enough about it, then you may not think about ordering the right tests, like getting you to a, a, a neurologist or someone who can perform an EMG. The last one, someone said, Kent Herbeck's father had ALS, and the Minnesota Twins have been very supportive of people living with ALS to add to the to the list of kind of famous people. Dr. Sam Miser, we're out of time. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you. It's, um, if you need to see a neurologist, here's one. He's been on with us for the past hour. Dr. Miser practices at Hennepin Healthcare. You can get in touch with him at hennepinhealthcare.org. Just look him up. You'll see his picture and his contact information, hennepinhealthcare.org. Or you can call us, 612-873-6963, 612-873-MYMD. Next week, we'll have what? We are going to talk next. I don't know what we're going to talk about next. Oh, concussions and brain injury. That's next week. You join us then here on News Talk 830 WCCO. Right now, fair skies in the Twin Cities, 28 degrees.